Hi, time for the 115th QuackCast. This is called Uneasy Lies the Head That Wears the Flu. Shakespeare, I am not. Infectious Diseases, ID, not to be confused with Intelligent Design, as those who listen to my other podcasts know, is without a doubt the most interesting specialty in medicine. Every interesting disease is infectious in etiology. What is cool about ID is that it has connections into almost every facet of human culture and history. I note that at some point I have gone from being the young whippersnapper to the Grandpa Simpson at my hospitals, and I'm one of the few who have been around long enough to be a repository of institutional memory. I remember what it was like 20 years ago, when no one consistently washed their hands, when all staff aureuses, staff aurei, were sensitive to beta-lactams, and we wore an onion on our belt, as was the style of the day. Oh, the changes I have seen. Besides remembering the not-so-good old days of my professional career, ID keeps me reminded of how the world used to be back in the old days, back in the past. Medicine used to be about epidemics that would routinely sweep across the world, Polio, measles, mumps, scarlet fever, rheumatic fever, tuberculosis, and on and on. I occasionally see tuberculosis, but thanks to modern medicine, many of the scourges that used to infest the world have mostly faded from medical practice, at least in the U.S. Not a one, I might add, has faded due to the efforts of Altamed practitioners. Influenza, though, still gives me pause. It is, as infections go, quite the tricky virus, and it remains a difficult beast to treat and prevent, which is a drag as it remains one of the most consistent causes of infectious morbidity and mortality. Epidemics and pandemics of influenza have been a reliable feature of the human condition since, I love this term for the flu, the gasping oppression first hit Europe about 500 years ago. But it is never as simple as flu comes, people get sick, flu goes away. There are three broad issues in how people respond to infections. There is the host and how they are able to deal with infections, genetic, nutritional, immunologic, and other comorbidities that increase or decrease the chance that an individual may or may not succumb to a given infection. This century has been fascinating in elucidating the increasing number of genetic variations that, in part, determine the outcome of an infection. There are them what scoff at personalized medicine, but I look forward to the day when I can smear my patient's DNA out on the slide, point, and say, hey, looky there. There is the polymorphism that makes you susceptible or resistant to an infection. It is part of the terrain, but not in the manner by which germ theory denialists would have us believe. There is the effectiveness of the antibiotic, an issue of declining importance, as increasing microbial resistance slowly pushes us into the post-antibiotic era. It is also the simplest factor in the interplay of forces that determine the outcome of an infection. And then there is the intrinsic virulence of the infecting organism. Some organisms are relatively simple in their ability to infect and kill, and others, like Staph aureus, are much more devious. I think of Staph aureus as the Professor Moriarty of infections. Maybe influenza is Ra's al Ghul. I don't know. Stretching a metaphor. 
But looking over the history of influenza, you realize it has a nasty habit of coming back, new and improved, to wreak havoc. On scam sites, you can often find the opinion that influenza isn't that bad, or that the medical-industrial complex overstates the morbidity and mortality of influenza to scare people into vaccination. Sometimes the flu season is mild, and sometimes it is not. But I am old enough to remember. And as George Santayana said, those who do not remember the past are condemned to underestimate the morbidity and mortality of influenza. Most in ID have the 1918-1919 pandemic in the backs of our minds. In a world before jet travel, influenza went around the world three times in a year, killing about 5% of the population. Some died directly from the flu, some from bacterial superinfections, and some, perhaps, interestingly, from excessive aspirin consumption. Maybe. The pandemic also was associated with a marked loss in pregnancies, perhaps as many as 1 in 10. The virus in 1918 appears to have had the dreaded combination of the pirate Robert, no wait, the dreaded combination of both infectivity and virulence. They have reconstructed the influenza from specimens in the Alaskan permafrost, and it was particularly virulent in animal models. 2013 is not 1919. We have better nutrition, better understanding of disease spread, antibiotics, and better health care. No, not to the health care system in the United States, but the ability to treat the ill. But there is always the worry that influenza will return in a form that is both very infectious and extremely virulent. And it is not if, but when it will happen. The last couple of years have seen some worrisome influenzas. First, there was the bird flu, H5N1, that has been slowly making its way across the world. It has high mortality rates, with 60% of cases dying of the disease. It is not, however, particularly infectious, as it has a decreased affinity to the human receptors which are needed to start the disease. Quote, the affinity of influenza virus to different cellule sugar structures is an important determinant of range and pathogenicity in the viral host. Human influenza viruses preferentially bind to alpha-2,6-cyleoglucan, glycan, whereas most avian viruses bind to an alpha-2,3-cyleoglucan. That's a 2,6 versus a 2,3. Q226L in the hemagglutinin protein, which was first reported in H7 field viruses as well as H5 subtypes, was expected to bind strongly to alpha-2,6 human-like receptors. Dun, 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 dun. It is why those who have developed H5N1 have had to have close contact and prolonged contact with birds before getting the disease. They basically had to suck in a lot of influenza before it could get a toehold and cause infection. However, it would only take a couple of mutations or acquisition of a new chunk of RNA for the H5N1 strain to become far more infectious. Although as a consequence, it could lose some virulence. The two do not always go hand in hand, since it may not pay for the virus to be too virulent. There is, as an aside, some information to suggest HIV, perhaps due to declining opportunity to spread due to safe sex, is actually becoming more virulent, more infectious. 
But for now, H5N1 is a low-grade, uneasy worry in the back of the mind. Is it going to acquire new RNA? Mutate? Both? Neither? Fade away like an old soldier? Got me. If I could predict the future, I would not be doing this podcast. And then there was H1N1. Getting in the Wayback Machine, I can see my first response to H1N1, published Tuesday, April 28, 2009, over at my infectious disease blog. I came back from spring break only to find that the border to Mexico was shut down because of a new, apparently fatal flu in Mexico. H1N1 turned out to be better than it could have been, but worse than I would have wanted. An amazing thing about the H1N1 epidemic was that in Portland, it was just severe enough to hit our peak capacity. Every ICU bed was full, all ventilators were in use, and if another patient came through the door needing advanced care, we had nothing to offer. They would die. Instead, the pandemic peaked and faded. There are also deaths I am not used to seeing with influenza. The patients who died were the young, the pregnant, and we had two deaths from H1N1 encephalitis. Worldwide, H1N1, quote, resulted in an estimated range of deaths between 151, 700,000 and 575, 400,000 people who perished worldwide from 2009 H1N1 virus during the first year the virus circulated. A disproportionate number of deaths occurred in Southeast Asia and Africa, where access to prevention and treatment resources are more likely to be limited. So, the mortality was not as awful as prior pandemics, at least in terms of numbers killed. Unless, of course, you were the one who died. It was more remarkable as to who died, and it was the worst flu season in my career. It will be interesting to see if the epidemiology of this year's flu season will be. It was a busy year with a lot of influenza in the outpatient setting, but my sense is that it has had little impact on hospitalization. There was not the surge of critically ill in the ICU we saw with the first outbreak of H1N1. And now? Well, there's H7N9 in China, a new bird flu. So far, it has about a 20-25% mortality rate. It's infectious? Eh, Best as you can tell, human-to-human transmission is possible but not probable. Almost all the cases have come from exposure to chickens. It apparently has low virulence in birds, so it spreads rapidly in bird populations without causing problems, but then it kills humans. So it has a potential to spread widely by way of migratory birds, a worry with H5N1 as well. And the entire human population is at risk. With no prior H7N9 infections ever seen in humans, nobody on the planet has immunity. Except, I suppose, some chicken farmers in China. And it is apparently has good potential for becoming infectious. It has the right affinity for binding on mammalian-like receptors. It would appear that A7N9 is not going to be the next pandemic strain to repeat the disaster that was 1918-19. Not quite there genetically, but close. One of these days, though, it will happen. Infectious, virulent, and a susceptible population 
and influenza will kill a lot of people. Quote, only the dead have seen the end of influenza. George Satiana, eh, sort of. And that ends a quick quack cast, the 115th in a series. See you next time. Bye.